When we look at the world today and see the billions of lives tormented by poverty, slavery, and oppression, it is easy to assume that these horrors have accompanied humanity for its entire existence. After all, for thousands of years, kings, philosophers, and priests have told us it has always been in the nature of human beings to suffer these evils. A serious study of our distant past, however, proves just the opposite. For almost our whole existence as a species, we lived in communist bands of hunter-gatherers, without lords or masters of any kind. For defenders of the present order, this simple fact poses a shattering rebuttal to their entire worldview, and many bourgeois historians and philosophers tend therefore to ignore the topic altogether. Those who do take up the gauntlet against our communistic past explain the origins of inequality as our greedy, oppressive nature asserting itself after thousands of years lying dormant. We should understand this for what it is, the false imposition of capitalist morality upon the whole of human history. In reality, as Marx wrote in The Poverty of Philosophy, all history is nothing but a continuous transformation of human nature. If we are to take a genuinely scientific approach to the development of society, we must understand the birth of class society not as some unhappy accident, nor as the awakening of some hitherto dormant, superhistorical human nature, but as a necessary stage in the continuous evolution of society, produced ultimately by perhaps the greatest revolution in humanity's productive forces ever known. And this is by no means an academic question. By understanding the birth of class society, we can grasp the real nature of its institutions and discover the means by which we can overthrow them. Fightback in Montreal. In this episode, I'll be narrating an article on the origin of class society, which was published in issue number 35 of our In Defense of Marxism quarterly magazine. This article was written by Josh Holroyd and Laurie O'Connell, members of the International Marxist Tendency and Socialist Appeal in Britain. So grab a snack, start your chores, whatever it is you're doing, and let's begin our anthropological journey through the rise of the first class societies. basic feature of all society is the relationship between human beings and nature. This is not some abstract ideal, but an entirely practical recognition of the fact that for humans to survive, we have always needed resources which come from the world around us. Our relationship with the natural world is mediated by labor, which we carry out socially. Through this process, we extract resources and find sources of food and shelter. It has always been the case, despite the embarrassment of many modern archaeologists, that humans have had to labor to survive. As Marx explains, Labor, then, as the creator of use values, is the condition of human existence, an internal natural necessity which mediates the metabolism between man and nature. But while the fact that we labor remains unaltered throughout history, 
the way in which we labor and the needs or desires we strive to satisfy have changed a great deal. Over millions of years, humankind has developed the tools and techniques in order to better achieve its ends. But the development of the means to satisfy even our most basic needs necessarily leads to the creation of new needs, new social relations, and totally new ways of life. This constant interaction has decided many things for us. Whether we move or stay in one place, whether we work all year round or in seasons, and has even affected our physiology and evolution. In every sense, therefore, in changing our environment, we change ourselves. In this lies the basis for all human progress. It was this fundamental principle of historical materialism that Engels summed up in his speech at Marx's graveside. Just as Darwin discovered the law of development of organic nature, so Marx discovered the law of development of human history. The simple fact, hitherto concealed by an overgrowth of ideology, that mankind must first of all eat, drink, have shelter and clothing before it can pursue politics, science, art, religion, etc. That therefore the production of the immediate material means and consequently the degree of economic development attained by a given people or during a given epoch form the foundation upon which the state institutions, the legal conceptions, art and even the ideas on religion the people concerned have been evolved, and in the light of which they must therefore be explained. Marx writes in Capital, Volume 1, The use and fabrication of instruments of labor, although existing in the germ among certain species of animals, is specifically characteristic of the human labor process. This can be observed archaeologically for as long as modern humans have been on this planet and even before. Some of our earliest hominin ancestors, Homo habilis and Homo ergaster, crafted stone tools. The Alduan tool complex, discovered at the Alduvai Gorge in Tanzania, dates back up to 2.6 million years. Throughout the Paleolithic period, covering roughly up to 10,000 BC, we see the emergence of one new tool complex after another. Achillean, Mousterian, Chattel Peronian, etc., we can even trace, alongside the production of these tools, the development of consciousness and complex thought. Generally, each tool complex is more symmetrical and requires more forward planning than the last, driving the development of the brain of modern humans to new heights. It is a further confirmation of the materialist method that even non-Marxist archaeologists are forced to periodize the past in terms of the material culture that prevailed in each age. It is not for nothing that we talk of the Paleolithic, which is from the ancient Greek word for old stone, Neolithic, new stone, Bronze Age, etc. These denominations all refer to the materials used to make the tools upon which production depended at the time. As Marx notes in Capital, Volume 1, Relics of bygone instruments of labor possess the same importance for the investigation of extinct economic forms of society as do fossil bones for the determination of extinct species of animals. It is not the articles made, but how they are made, and by what instruments, that enables us to distinguish different economic epochs. Instruments of labor not only supply a standard of the degree of development to which human labor has attained, but they are also indicators of the social conditions under which that labor is carried on. This simple but revolutionary idea is by no means accepted throughout the academic establishment. 
Indeed, this most basic principle of historical materialism meets in the university faculty the same horror and indignation as Darwin's theory of natural selection met in Victorian drawing rooms. The result is that modern academia stands a long way behind even the ancient Greek philosophers in its understanding of society. Both Plato and Aristotle acknowledged that there was a material basis for their leisure time. As Aristotle writes in his Metaphysics, theoretical arts were developed in places where men had plenty of free time. Thus, the mathematical sciences originated in the neighborhood of Egypt because there the priestly class was allowed leisure. This necessarily presupposes a certain degree of development in the productivity of labor, and with it, a reorganization of the structure of society itself. It is to the early beginnings of this development that we will now turn. Primitive Communism Archaeologists have found very little evidence of significant inequality prior to the Neolithic period, which began a little under 12,000 years ago. Evidence gathered from Paleolithic sites all over the world paints a picture of small, overwhelmingly mobile societies reliant on hunting, fishing, and foraging for survival, in which hardly any differences in wealth or status can be detected from goods buried with the dead. Of course, we will never be able to say exactly how prehistoric hunter-gatherer societies looked in detail, but anthropological studies of existing hunter-gatherer societies, like the Kung people of the Kalahari Desert, offer a glimpse of what they may have been like. The anthropologist Richard Leakey writes, The Kung have no chiefs and no leaders. No one gives orders or takes them. Sharing deeply pervades the values of the Kung foragers, just as the principle of profit and rationality is central to the capitalist ethic. This outlook is well attested in hunter-gatherer communities across the world and fits perfectly with the evidence provided by Paleolithic sites. But the egalitarianism of our prehistoric past was not a purely cultural or moral phenomenon. At root, it came from the fact that there was, and could be, no private property beyond the possession of tools and other personal items. These groups were successful, skilled hunter-gatherers, but they lived day-to-day -day or year-to-year, -year, not accumulating any significant surplus. Accordingly, there was no concept of land ownership or inheritance. This can be seen most clearly in the practices of the aborigines of the central Australian desert, widely considered one of the oldest continuous cultures on Earth, spanning as far back as 50,000 years. In the 1960s, the anthropologist Richard Gold spent time living with hunter-gatherers at the center of the Australian landmass. He noted that all food brought back to camp was meticulously shared between all members of the group, even when it was no more than a small lizard. Based on the excavation of local rock shelters, Gold hypothesized that the inhabitants of this region had lived in this way since the first occupation of the region by Homo sapiens. The principle behind this extreme, even absolute, form of communism is not hard to discover. Scarcity, ultimately, caused by the relatively low stage of development of the productive forces and the low level of control over the natural environment, while other hunter-gatherer societies did not face such harsh conditions, the same principle can be seen in operation all over the Paleolithic world. Another feature of the egalitarian character of Paleolithic society is the equal position of women. 
As Friedrich Engels states in his masterpiece, The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. One of the most absurd notions taken over from 18th century enlightenment is that in the beginning of society, woman was the slave of man. Among all savages and all barbarians of the lower and middle stages, and to a certain extent of the upper stage also, the position of women is not only free, but honorable. Basing himself on the most recent anthropological studies of the time, in particular Henry Louis Morgan's study of the Iroquois, Engels put forward the revolutionary idea that the systemic oppression of women is in fact a relatively recent development in the history of our species. Analyzing not only Iroquois society, but also the ancient Athenians, Romans, and Germans, he argued that the historic defeat of the female sex had an economic foundation the private ownership of the means of production, in particular the land and herds and its accumulation in the hands of men. Further, if women's oppression had a beginning, Engels concluded, it must therefore have an end. The establishment of a communist society without private property and class exploitation would re-establish the freedom and equality of men and women on a higher level than ever before. It is this perspective that has armed and inspired Marxists in the fight for women's liberation ever since. However, this revolutionary insight has been dismissed not only by defenders of the present system, but even by feminist theorists who claim that Engels' interpretation of primitive communist society is nothing but a comforting myth. In recent years, even professedly Marxist academics have joined these attacks on the basis of Engels' theory. Christophe Damangiat of the University of Paris, for example, argues, The male monopoly over hunting and weapons has everywhere given men a position of strength relative to women, meaning that women were everywhere placed in such a situation where they could be reduced to the role of mere instruments in men's strategies. What is remarkable about this argument is that, while purporting to correct angles on the basis of more modern research, it manages to repeat exactly the same false assumption that Engels demolished over 100 years ago. Darmangiat's first premise is that hunting and weapons were always a male monopoly. In order for this thesis to be valid, it must have a universal application, i.e. it must signify that this alleged monopoly has existed always and everywhere with no exceptions. But such an assertion cannot be made, since it is contradicted by most modern research, including in hunter-gatherer communities that continue to exist. For example, in the Acta of the Philippines, women are known to practice weapon-assisted hunting. Further back in time, the picture becomes even more complex, with the recent discovery of hunting gear in the grave of a young adult female in the Andes, dated to around 7000 BC and depictions of women hunting with spears in the earliest cave paintings in Burzahom, India, dated to around 6000 BC. However, even if we accept that hunting has commonly been a male preserve, Damangiat's argument contains a much more pernicious falsehood. The assumption that wherever this is the case, women are reduced to mere instruments. No Marxist would deny that there exist natural differences between men and women, and that therefore some form of division of labor has existed between the sexes in all societies. The fact that women carry and give birth to children is one obvious example of this. Depending on a community's natural surroundings and resources, this may have meant that men ranged further from the camp, 
for example, participating in hunting expeditions, while women tended to focus on gathering resources closer to home, bringing children along with them. Such a division of labor was observed amongst the Kung, for example. The crucial point, however, is that in such societies, occupying a different position in the division of labor at this early stage cannot be presented as proof of oppression or exploitation by another section of society. On the contrary, all the available evidence points to the contrary. Referring to the Kung, Patricia Draper writes, Men and women of the foraging groups are egalitarian in their dealings with each other. They are typically found in mixed-sex groups in the camp settings, although their work is usually done in same-sex groups. Women do not show deference to men. Living in small bands without well-developed leadership roles, they arrive at decisions by a consensus in which women participate along with men. The women described here could hardly be described as anyone's instruments. Far from it. In many cases, such as that of the Kung, plants gathered by women contribute as much as 80% of the community's daily food intake, and, unlike male hunters, female foragers retain control over the final distribution of the foods they have collected. The anthropologist Chris Knight argued that, in many hunter-gatherer societies, a young man will never acquire permanent sexual rights in the woman he regularly visits. Instead, he must continuously earn approval by surrendering all his hunted meat to his mother-in-law for her to distribute as she pleases. Again, who is controlling whom here? Nor does the possession of weapons or greater strength necessarily lead to violence against women. One study in 1989 found that the traditional nomadic or semi-nomadic San were one of only six societies in the world where domestic violence was almost unheard of. This is an absolutely astonishing fact when one considers the permanent pandemic of violence against women that claims tens of thousands of lives every year across the world. The image of men as the dominant providers and women as subordinate housewives is totally anachronistic, a conception of prehistory taken straight out of the Flintstones. The persistence of this idea has nothing to do with science or historical research. It is merely a reflection of the fact that those who peddle this myth are incapable of rising above the notions and prejudices of present-day class society. And if you accept the prejudices of class society, then you must ultimately accept its conclusions, rejecting the possibility not only of equality between men and women, but of the establishment of a more equal society in general. That is to say, this allegedly scientific argument ultimately boils down to just one thing, the permanent existence of class society, forever and ever. Amen. It is sometimes asked how people could have gone from the seemingly utopian primitive communist society to one where the vast majority of people were oppressed. The anthropologist Marshall Salins even coined the term the original affluent society, based on his own study of hunter-gatherer groups, which concluded that each adult would only have had to work three to five hours a day to gather enough resources. While this is likely an exaggeration based on too narrow a definition of work, it does call into question the idea that hunter-gatherer societies were permanently on the edge of starvation. But just as we should reject the Hobbesian myth of life as always nasty, brutish, and short, prior to its liberation by the civilized repression of the state, we should also be wary of bending the stick too far in the other direction. 
Paleolithic society did not exist in some Edenic state of health and abundance. Ice Age populations were of necessity small with little certainty and control over the conditions of their existence. Most would have consumed their food within hours or days, suggesting only a very limited surplus product, if any at all. Most hunter-gatherer groups had a low life expectancy as well as a low birth rate. Even after the last Ice Age ended, around 9700 BC, scarcity and hardship continued to be a challenge faced by hunter-gatherer communities. To give just one example, at the site of Mahadaha in India, Dated as late as 4000 BC, the estimated age of death of all of the 13 skeletons found was between 19 and 28, but probably much closer to 19. None were over 50. Then, as now, the driver of development was the struggle for the means to survive and thrive in the face of adversity. The production and reproduction of the immediate essentials of life. Just as the need to improve the way people gathered resources encouraged the development of stone tools, it also drove human beings to look for more diverse and reliable food sources. This process would take on a life of its own as the global climate began to warm roughly 20,000 years ago. In this period, rising temperatures and moisture levels, along with the retreating ice sheets, opened up entire regions for human beings and greatly increased the quantity and variety of available resources. Stimulated by their changing environment, hunter-gatherers rapidly developed new, more sophisticated means of acquiring these resources, producing an explosion in humanity's productive forces. Older stone tools, like hand axes, were replaced by microliths, much smaller stone tools, such as drills and arrowheads. Bones were fashioned into fine needles for stitching together different types of fur, creating the warm, layered clothing that humans used to colonize the frozen wilds of Siberia. Harpoons were carved from reindeer antlers in order to exploit the greater availability of fish. Wicker cages were crafted to catch eels. This was a qualitative as well as quantitative leap in the productivity and scope of human labor. Aside from hunting and fishing, people also took advantage of the wild plant foods that began to flourish in the warmer and wetter climate. The earliest known harvesting of wild grasses dates as far back as the last ice age, around 21,000 BC, at Ohalo in modern Israel. By around 14,000 BC, wild emmer wheat, einkorn, and barley were being cultivated across the region. This development, which at the time may have appeared only to be a small gain, marks the early beginnings of a process that would irreversibly change humanity's relationship with the natural world, and with it, human life itself. The first cultivation of cereals and other plants was still a long way from the agricultural production of the Neolithic period. In most places, it would have been much closer to a form of wild gardening, whereby the cultivators would regularly visit sites where such plants were known to grow so they could gather what was available. But even through this seemingly passive form of gathering, human beings were actively transforming nature in both conscious and unconscious ways. Many of the plants and animals on which we rely as staples today have not always existed. Maize, beans, squash, staple cereal crops, and even pigs, sheep, and cattle as we know them today evolved due to human intervention in nature many thousands of years ago. For example, the wild grasses that were cultivated in places like Ohalo possessed much smaller grains than the wheat we consume today. 
The discovery of larger-than-average grains at Jerf el Amar in modern Syria suggests that as far back as 13,000 BC, people were deliberately re-sowing the grasses with larger grains in order to improve productivity. Even more importantly, the ears of these ancient grasses would break off and disperse spontaneously at varying times, increasing their chances of successful propagation. But what is good for the grass is not necessarily good for the gatherer. A great proportion of the potential crop would be lost before the harvester even arrived. Modern cereal crops have what is called non-disarticulating rachis, which means that the ears will stay put until someone comes to harvest them. This biological transformation was the product of the intervention and innovation of human beings. Under the right conditions, the potential selective pressure created by deliberate improvements in the gatherer's technique would be realized in the evolution of new species of wheat and barley, itself a dramatic development of the productive forces. This takes us to what archaeologists today call the Neolithic Revolution. Alongside the increasing resources and improved tools and techniques of this period, the first ever settlements started to appear. These would likely have first been semi-permanent or seasonal camps that people returned to more and more regularly, such as Star Car in Britain, dated to roughly 9000 BC. But eventually, this period would witness the first permanent villages in the world. An early example of this can be found at the Natufian site of Ain Malaha in the Levant, dated from roughly 12,500 BC, where people settled permanently, relying on the hunting of gazelle along with the cultivation of wild wheat and barley. However, even in the highest stages of the Epipaleolithic, which literally translates to the late Old Stone Age, permanent settlements were very rare and can be found only at sites with exceptionally favorable natural conditions, such as Ain Malaha or the salmon runs in the Pacific Northwest. At this stage, it was very difficult and in some cases impossible to create similar conditions elsewhere. And so, to an extent, the location of settlements and means of subsistence ultimately remained passively determined by nature. But the developments taking place at this time were preparing the way for a dramatic transformation in which the exception would become the rule. Often in history, Crises have catalyzed the deep processes of change developing under the surface. These crises can be both internal and external. Prior to the development of agriculture in the Near East, the world got significantly colder in a return to glacial conditions known as the Younger Dryas, roughly 11,000 to 9,700 BC. As herd migrations and the appearance of wild grasses were disrupted, the established way of life for many people became impossible. Some would certainly have perished, while many would have had to return to a more mobile way of life. But the preceding development, which had been gradually building up over thousands of years, was not lost. As people abandoned dying settlements, they took harvested grains with them and sowed them in completely new locations. The creation of new plots and the greater reliance that certain communities placed on the cultivation of cereal crops using flint sickles is enough to have accelerated the process of natural and artificial selection that eventually gave birth to fully domesticated wheat, and with it, the means of overcoming the limitations of the old hunter-gatherer settlements. We can see this process clearly at Abu Huraira in modern Syria, where people responded to the cooling climate by the intensive cultivation of wild rye, 
resulting in the oldest domesticated cereal grain yet found, dated to roughly 10,500 BC. From roughly 9,500 BC, people in the Levant and southeastern Turkey returned to settled life, but this time on a qualitatively higher level, based on domesticated cereals and animals such as sheep and goats, which had also been transformed by the conscious intervention of human hunters turned shepherds. By roughly 8,000 BC, this new way of life had spread across the Near East and would soon begin to be adopted in Europe and South Asia. Settled agriculture also arose independently elsewhere, including China, several parts of Africa, and the Americas. The Marxist archaeologist Gordon Child referred to this process as the Neolithic Revolution. For bourgeois academics, the description of anything as a revolution sounds far too Marxist for an archaeology textbook. Instead, they argue that domestication and the development of agriculture should be referred to as the Neolithic Transition because it was a process which developed over a long period of time. This is a rather childish way of understanding history. The Cambrian Explosion, a period of rapid diversification of complex multicellular animal life, took place over 10 million years, but it was still explosive compared to the billions of years of incredibly slow evolution that preceded it. The Neolithic Revolution was a similarly massive and rapid transformation from the standpoint of human society. Homo sapiens has existed for around 300,000 years, but these developments took place over only a few thousand years and were totally earth-shattering, giving birth to a new way of life, a new mode of production, and with it, a new stage in the history of the human race. Another objection to the traditional portrayal of the Neolithic Revolution attacks its materialistic conclusions. Looking back at these processes from a distance of over 10,000 years, it is easy to see the profound impact that developments in human labor and technique have had on both nature and society. But just as the notion of a Neolithic revolution smells too much of Marxism for today's academic establishment, this confirmation of the most basic ideas of historical materialism is too much for some scientific minds to bear. For instance, Anthony Giddens, the sociologist behind Tony Blair's Third Way, argues that the productive forces cannot be considered the determining factor in the Neolithic Revolution in history in general. Giddens writes, Human social life neither begins nor ends in production. When Mumford calls man a mind-making, self-mastering, and self-designing animal, and when Frankel sees in human life a searching for meaning, they are closer to supplying the basis for a philosophical anthropology of human culture than Marx was. The relatively recently discovered site at Gobekli Tepe in southeast Anatolia, modern Turkey, has lately been claimed to provide more evidence for this idealist conception of history. The site is dated to 9600 BC, at the very beginning of the Neolithic period, and features grand stone altars that clearly suggest that there was a degree of specialization and surplus labor time to devote to the site's construction. There is also plenty of evidence to suggest that this site was in use all year round. However, the abundance of wild animal bones and the absence of domesticates suggests that people who built this temple were hunter-gatherers. This remarkable discovery has provoked an effusion of triumphant articles declaring the death of materialism. Rather than settling because of the development of agriculture or anything else related to production, 
It has been argued that people first settled for religious purposes and then developed agriculture as a means of feeding the congregation. I think what we are learning is that civilization is a product of the human mind, announced the lead archaeologist at the site, Klaus Schmidt. But the insight that civilization is a product of the mind is not nearly as profound as its author might think. The steam engine was also a product of the mind, as was the factory system. The flint sickle was a product of the mind. If even the most militant materialist makes himself a meal, he does so because he had the idea of doing it. As Engels put it, everything which sets men in motion must go through their minds, but what form it will take in the mind will depend very much upon the circumstances. It is necessary to ask why the people who built Gobekli Tepe chose to build such a large and permanent place of worship in the first place, and then why they chose to turn to the cultivation of wheat to sustain themselves. Ritual activity was important throughout the Paleolithic and beyond as a means of understanding and controlling the natural world, and the harvesting of wild wheat dates back as long as 23,000 years. So why did a similar development not occur during the last ice age? The explanation for this can ultimately only be found in the development of the productive forces, humanity's relationship with nature, mediated through labor, its instruments, its organization, and its technique. The means for the permanent cultivation of domesticated crops and animals had been prepared within the old hunter-gatherer society over thousands of years prior to the construction of Quebecli Tepe. Indeed, the means for the permanent cultivation of domesticated crops and animals had been prepared within the old hunter-gatherer society over thousands of years prior to the construction of Quebecli Tepe. As noted above, domesticated rye grains have been traced back as far as 10,500 BC. Further, more recent excavations at the site have revealed evidence of both domestic buildings and the consumption of wild grains, which had been missed or ignored by Schmidt's idealist approach. This means that Gobekli Tepe was not just a temple, it was a settlement, which eventually turned to agriculture as a means of overcoming the limitations of hunter-gatherer production. This only reinforces the conclusion that the fascinating altars and religious practices of the people that lived there had a material base. Like the people of Tel Abu Hurera, who turned to the intensive cultivation of rye in the face of adversity, the culture that created Gobekli Tepe marks a crucial point in the Neolithic Revolution, wherein the necessity of a new form of social organization is reflected in the conscious actions of individuals. Such is the course of any genuine social revolution. The ideas, desires, and religious notions of those individuals did not spring passively and directly from their tools. They were the product of the minds of real living human beings and would undoubtedly have had a decisive effect on the form this process took. But the real content of this process was still provided by the changes taking place in their environment, their society, and the labor upon which it was founded. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. Marx writes in Capital, Epochs in the history of society are no more separated from each other by strict and abstract lines of demarcation than are geological epochs. In this vein, the earliest villages of the Neolithic period would have appeared to be very similar to some of the hunter-gatherer settlements that had emerged at the very end of the Paleolithic. 
In some cases, Neolithic communities could well have been relatively mobile, settling temporarily to cultivate a plot of land, only to move on to a fresh plot after a few seasons had exhausted the soil, as was observed among the Iroquois by the anthropologist Henry Louis Morgan. Hunting, fishing, and gathering would have persisted alongside the cultivation of grain. It would take several hundred years before the fundamental changes that were being brought upon society would become obvious. One such change was a marked increase in the size and number of settlements. The average Natufian settlement is thought to have housed between 100 and 150 people, a considerable number by hunter-gatherer standards, but tiny in comparison to the Neolithic settlements that would emerge from 9500 BC onwards. Even a small Neolithic village would tend to house around 250 people, roughly double the Natufian average. Jericho, perhaps the oldest settlement still in existence, boasted a population of up to 1,000 at roughly 9,000 BC, only a few hundred years after the beginning of the Neolithic. This could only have been achieved on the basis of a dramatic leap in the productive forces. Settled agriculture not only favored greater concentrations of people, but also fostered population growth in general. The reproductive advantage was substantially offset by the higher rates of child mortality and generally lower life expectancy of Neolithic farmers, caused by a narrower diet and the explosion of previously unknown diseases, the darker side of a sedentary life which places sometimes thousands of people and animals in close proximity. However, in spite of the problems that came with the new settled way of life, the higher birth rate continued to produce both a greater size and spread of farming settlements at the expense of nomadic hunter-gatherer groups. In Britain, continental migrants are thought to have introduced farming from roughly 4000 BC, replacing the old way of life over the entire island in the space of 2000 years, a very short period by prehistoric standards. With the changed mode of production of material life, new ideological and religious forms also took shape. One example of this is the rise of what are interpreted to be ancestor cults, such as the plastered skulls found at Jericho, and the burial of deceased relatives in the floors of houses. The notion that one's ancestors remain with the family, sometimes literally inside the house, and protected their living relatives, is well attested in Chinese culture from very ancient times as well. This would fit well with the continuity and intended permanence of the household working the same lands. The transition to settled agriculture also began to affect the division of labor within the family. A dramatically higher birth rate would have meant that women spent more time carrying, delivering, and caring for children, meaning they could have been less available for fieldwork. Evidence from a number of Neolithic sites suggests that in many places, this development, combined with the more intensive labor and constant supervision required for the fields and flocks, resulted in a more rigid division of responsibilities within the family. As cereal cultivation becomes increasingly important, so too does the processing of wheat and barley. At Tel Abu Herrera, mentioned above, female skeletons had arthritis in their toes because they spent hours kneeling, rocking backwards and forwards and using their body weight to grind grains into flour. A similar division of labor was discovered at a Neolithic site in China, dated to 5000 to 6000 BC, where male burials tended to include stone agricultural and hunting implements, while female graves 
lack these sorts of artifacts but include tools for grinding grain. This evidence, along with other studies, have led many anthropologists to draw a link between the rise of settled agriculture and the tendency of women to perform domestic labor in the home. This domestic labor was by no means secondary or ancillary to the labor of men, however. Neolithic houses are often found with their own areas for weaving. Toolmaking, though usually pictured as men's work, also took place around the home or village, and in many cases fell to the women of the household. Indeed, anthropological studies of the Konso, a largely agricultural ethnic group in Ethiopia, whose hide workers are some of the last people in the world to use flint-napped tools on a mass scale, indicates that women in these communities are usually the toolmakers. The Neolithic household was as much a workshop as a home, and evidence suggests that women were increasingly found at the heart of it. The shift in the division of labor within the family was neither automatic nor absolute. There is plenty of evidence of societies in which men and women perform roughly equal quantities of work inside and outside the household, such as the extremely important Neolithic site of Katalhoyuk in modern Turkey. There have also been many societies in which agriculture tended to be carried out by women instead of men, like the Iroquois documented by Morgan. It would therefore be overly simplistic and false to draw an automatic and immediate link between agriculture in general and the tendency of women to work more in the home. Further, we cannot interpret these changes in the division of labor within the family as solid evidence of the systematic oppression of women and patriarchy that would become the hallmark of all civilized peoples later on. While it appears that women were more likely to work at home, their work was highly valued in their society, and they enjoyed the same status as men. Many Neolithic burial grounds have been found that contain an equal number of male and female bodies, with no noticeable distinction of wealth or status between them, such as Midhau Cairn in Orkney. What Tel Abu Herrera and other Neolithic sites indicate is the early embryonic appearance of new relations within Neolithic society, which tended to place women more regularly in the home. On its own, this shift in the division of labor did not place women in the dependent or oppressed state, but in the course of further development as the labor and supervision involved in agricultural production became increasingly intense, this tendency would become more pronounced, eventually laying the foundations for an even greater shift in the relations between men and women. But this would not take place during the Neolithic itself. It would require the birth of class society before these developments would be transformed into the systematic oppression of women. The Village Commune Despite the embryonic signs of inequality found in the Neolithic period, social relations were still communistic in nature. We see little to no evidence of private property, class exploitation, or inherited wealth. Engels outlines the social structure of these classless societies in the origin of the family, private property, and the state. No soldiers, no gendarmes or police, no nobles, kings, regents, prefects, or judges, no prisons, no lawsuits, and everything takes its orderly course. The household is maintained by a number of families in common and is communistic. The land belongs to the tribe. Only the small gardens are allotted provisionally to the households. Yet there is no need for even a trace of our complicated administrative apparatus with all its ramifications. 
There cannot be any poor or needy. The communal household and the gens know their responsibilities towards the old, the sick, and those disabled in war. All are equal and free, the women included. There is no place yet for slaves, nor, as a rule, for the subjugation of other tribes. Engels, following Morgan, termed this stage in the development of human society barbarism, which began with the development of agriculture, the domestication of animals, and pottery. For people living in these early farming communities who retained the morality and cultural norms of the commune, any other way of life must have been unthinkable. One important piece of evidence that points towards this is the emergence of group burials, where all individuals are buried communally with no regard to social distinction or status. Midhow Cairn in Orkney, discussed above, has at least 25 individuals buried together. A resource-intensive monument like this, with multiple separate stone chambers, does not reflect a lack of respect for the individuals buried within. It fits the morality of a society that was itself communal. Even very large Neolithic settlements were organized on a communal basis. Katalhoyuk, mentioned above, was home to an estimated 10,000 people at its height, around 7,000 BC. It consisted of closely packed houses in which each household operated as an individual unit, with burials beneath the floors rather than in common graveyards. But despite this relative household independence, Houses showed little difference in size, suggesting very little, if any, differences in wealth or status. The egalitarian nature of the Neolithic commune has led some to question the link between the Neolithic revolution and the rise of class society. Many Neolithic communities lasted for thousands of years without forced labor, taxation, or even very much inequality. So to what degree can we say that the rise of class society was inevitable or inherent in Neolithic production? Marx famously explained that development within a mode of production necessarily brings about the conditions for its overthrow by new relations. No social formation is ever destroyed before all the productive forces for which it is sufficient have been developed, and new, superior relations of production never replace older ones before the material conditions for their existence have matured within the framework of the old society. The inevitability of class society lies in the fact that the development of Neolithic production itself prepared the very conditions upon which the rise of class society was based. The increasingly complex division of labor and society, and most important of all, the growth of the surplus product. We will focus largely on how this took place in the Near East. No argument is made here that every development that took place in this region is an exhaustive model for the rise of all class societies, but in setting out the process in all its phases in one region, we hope to bring out its most basic elements. And that's it for this episode of Fight Back Radio. Please do tune in again next time for an in-depth look at how the growth of the surplus led to the establishment of the first major urban areas, the need for writing and money, and the birth of the first states.